The sermon for this sixth Sunday after Trinity is based on the epistle lesson. It comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and it's on page 799 of the Pew Bible. The text begins with a question. Uh, the book of Romans it has a tight and logical progression from one chapter to the next, and so it's hard to just pick it up in the middle if we don't know what the previous chapter was about. So, in chapter 5, Paul explained that God declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done. And at the end of chapter 5, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this kind of makes it sound like perhaps we should sin more so that we can be forgiven more. And this is the issue that Paul uh, takes up in chapter 6. So please stand for the scripture reading. From Romans 6, we begin reading at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been justified from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Dear baptized Christians, I have bad news for you. You died. Wait, let me correct that. I have good news for you. You died. Isn't that fantastic? Okay, maybe you think I'm crazy. First of all, you don't feel very dead. Your heart is still beating, your lungs are still breathing, and your brain is still processing. Perhaps right now it is trying to process what in the world I'm talking about. As far as you can tell, you are not dead. And you are right about that. So I must be crazy to say that you died. I also must be crazy, or at least hypocritical, to say that this is a good thing. We spend our entire lives trying to avoid death, right? And we should. And we just heard both Moses and Jesus in the Old Testament and Gospel lessons commanding us to not murder this commandment is based on the fundamental truth that death is bad. 
And beyond the commandment not to murder, it is also our responsibility as Christians to protect life in whatever ways that we can. The small catechism rightly explains the fifth commandment by saying we should fear and love God so that we do our neighbor no bodily harm nor cause him any suffering, but help and befriend him in every need. And so in society, as we seek as Christians to help and befriend our neighbors, all of them, we find ourselves sometimes struggling to convince the world of what should be obvious, the truth that life is good and ought to be protected. So if this is true, how can I stand here and say to you not only that you died, but that this is actually a good thing? I must be crazy or a hypocrite or maybe both. Well, as we just read from Scripture, it is not me who declares that you have died. It is the Apostle Paul. And it is the Apostle Paul who presents this to us as a good thing. So how can something that sounds bad really be so good? As we consider this text from Romans 6, we will see what he means. But first, even before we do that, we should back up just a little bit. And I want to briefly consider the other two lessons appointed for today, because I hope you'll see that all three of these lessons fit together very, very nicely. The Old Testament lesson is the Ten Commandments. Here we have a summary of God's law. This is God's will for our lives. He tells us what we should do and what we should not do. But then, you know, as we compare ourselves along with our thoughts, words, and deeds to the Ten Commandments, we soon realize that, well, we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a problem because the wages of sin is death. Some of our transgressions are obvious violations of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't think anyone is so naive as to think that he has kept the Fourth Commandment to honor father and mother. We can all think of ways in our lives where we have broken that. It is also obvious that all of us have, at some time or another, borne false witness and broken the Eighth Commandment. And we all know that we have coveted something, whether it be our neighbor's wife or husband, his house or his tractor or his fishing boat or his Legos or whatever else might belong to someone else. And thus we cannot help but break the ninth and tenth commandments. We do it all the time. And we do this really because we love ourselves, right? That is our nature. We are selfish. And so, in doing this, we make ourselves to be our own gods, and we break the first commandment. Then there are other commandments which sometimes, I guess we think that we have kept. Someone might say, okay, so yeah, I coveted my neighbor's wife, but I, I didn't sleep with her, so I haven't, broken, uh, I haven't committed adultery. Or we might say, well, there are plenty of people that I don't like, and I might kind of like to see them dead, but I haven't actually killed any of them. But as Jesus will teach us, these commandments condemn much more than just our actions. 
So now let's fast forward about 1,500 years from when the Ten Commandments were given to when Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus came teaching the Word of God, healing people, feeding people, and, well, being nice to sinners. And it was the being nice to sinners part that caused people to question him. It kind of seemed, sometimes, like Jesus wasn't concerned about the law, these commandments. So Jesus clarified his position, both for sinners that he was hanging out with and for those who thought they were not. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law was not going away. Something else was happening with Jesus and the law, but the law was not going away. For Jesus, righteousness and the fulfillment of the law are extremely important. So important that Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what Jesus says here. Notice that he does not say our righteousness must match that of the scribes and Pharisees. No, he says it must exceed their righteousness. So not even the scribes and Pharisees have enough. Jesus is starting to show us where his standard of righteousness is. You take the scribes and Pharisees, the best of the best, the bar is somewhere above them. And if your righteousness does not surpass theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You will die instead. And this does not sound good. And then Jesus, he goes on even further to explain how unkeepable the commandments are. He takes that one commandment that most of us think we have kept, and he intensifies it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Lest anyone think that Jesus does not care about righteousness or sin or the law, Jesus proves that he takes the law very seriously, far more seriously than you or I ever could. He makes it harder to keep, and he makes the consequences unavoidable. Jesus makes sure that we all know what we deserve. Judgment, death, even nothing less than the hell of fire. You and I must die, and this is not good news. So Jesus has not come to abolish the law. Instead, he came to fulfill the law. He came to do what you and I are incapable of doing. He kept the law down to the last dot. Even though he suffered a sinner's death, he himself is not a sinner. But so what? So Jesus is perfect. So there is one person who does not deserve to die. 
What good is that to you and me? We're still sinners. We still deserve to die. All we have now is an example that we can't live up to. And this just makes everything worse. God tortures us by making us behold someone who does what we cannot. If Jesus did everything right and still died, then what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, there is hope. There is hope if his death is also your death. There is hope if you died with him. Now we come back to what Paul says in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Remember, the law says you must die, and the law is not wrong. There is no way to avoid this consequence. Not even Christ removes this consequence. You and I must die. And instead of Jesus removing this consequence, he does something else. He gives his death to you. And he lets you die with him. And he does this in a way that causes you no bodily harm. He uses water. He uses baptism. Baptism is death. Baptism is your death with Christ Jesus. And if you have died with Christ Jesus, then the law's demand that you must die has already been fulfilled. You see how this is good? The law says you must die, and this is bad news. But your baptism says you already died, and this is good news. And so, dear baptized Christians, you died. And this is the most marvelous thing. The law has no threats it can level against you. The law threatens you with death, but you have already died. And so the law has been silenced. It says you must die, but you have been baptized into Christ Jesus. His death on the cross has become yours. You died with him, and so you can cross death off of your bucket list. Listen to what Paul says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free, or an even better translation would be, one who has died has been justified from sin. One who has died has been declared righteous from sin. You have died with Christ. And if you have died with Christ, so has your sin. This is what happened in your baptism. And this is marvelous. But baptism is even more than death. Paul goes on to explain, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
Baptism is more than death. Baptism is life. Our baptism into Christ is the assurance that on the last day when Jesus descends from heaven, we will be raised from the dead, even as he is risen from the dead. This is our blessed hope. Baptism promises us that we will experience that resurrection. And even beyond that, baptism makes us participants in Jesus' resurrection now. Baptism is not a pretend thing. And neither is it merely a promise for the future. Baptism is a real change now. It is a real death and resurrection here and now. In baptism, God justifies you. He declares you righteous. And when God declares you to be righteous, he is not playing make-believe. God is not just pretending that you are not a sinner. It is not like God is putting vibrant makeup on a corpse. He is not putting a fresh coat of paint on a rotten board. God is killing the rot, and he is raising the corpse to life. In your baptism, God makes you to be a new creation. He gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is no pretend justification. Christ's righteousness is really real. And it is really yours. The faith that God creates in you is living and active. It is, and it is constantly doing good works. Even before your faith is asked to do good works, it is doing them. And even before you realize them. You might never realize them. You might look at your life and say, I must not really have faith because I don't see very many good works. But that is precisely the nature of faith. Because faith never looks at itself. Faith never notices its own works. Because faith looks only to one thing, or well, to one person. It looks only to Christ. If we were really permitted to see all the good works that we do in faith, we would be captivated by these works and lose sight of Christ. Perhaps, maybe someday in heaven, we will be allowed to see the good works that God did through faith, and we'll say, wow, I had no idea. But until that day, we live by faith, believing that we are justified and believing that God is at work, even when we seem so weak and sinful. Through baptism, you have died with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ. This is reality. Whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, and you should believe it to be true, because God says it is. And so whether you are sometimes tempted to despair because you see no fruit in your life, or whether you are tempted to continue on in sin with no regard because well, God forgives you anyway, consider your baptism instead. 
Consider who God says you are. God says you have died with Christ and have been raised with him. Therefore, you are a new creation. When God declares you to be something, that is what you are. Because God does not lie. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God because you are. And so, dear Christians, I have good news for you. You died. Amen. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.